You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Galatians chapter 4 is where we are. So uh, it'd really serve you to have a Bible out and open on your lap there where you can follow along Galatians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. So if you need one, um, take that one. And if you don't have a good Bible, you can take that, that Bible home with you. Okay, so we are in part two of a set of sermons called Sons and Daughters, where we are looking at this big biblical doctrine of adoption, wading into these rich waters. Adoption is one of those words that in the Bible just explodes with life and meaning. Okay, now last week, if you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and grab it at some point. We tried to compare and contrast the idea of horizontal adoption, in other words, like a human being adopting another human being, with the wonder and amazing grace of vertical adoption of God adopting us. And so that was last week. And so today we're going to kind of make the next turn. And uh, let me just go ahead and start us back off with some familiar words from a guy named J.I. Packer. I read this last week. Uh, I I said this last week that he uh, wrote a chapter in his book called Knowing God, chapter 19, that I think might be the single best chapter ever written on the doctrine of adoption. Really, really good. And so J.I. Packer, uh, let's let him um, re-acclimate us to where we are. It'll be on the screen for you. To start off chapter 19 of that book, he's trying to answer the question, what is a Christian? What, what is a Christian? How would you describe a Christian? What, what are they? What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know, I said this last week, that he is not given to like over-exaggeration. That, that's not him. One of the best minds of the last century, here's how he's answering it. The ris- richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Isn't that, isn't that great to know? And here comes just an unbelievable paragraph. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it, as a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator. In other words, the God who created is also the God who is fathering. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion, what it looks like to live as a Christian, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, how mature are they? How how well do they get this thing called the gospel of grace, Christianity? Find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Now, I love these last two lines. Father is the Christian name for God. If you're a Christian... This is how you can refer to God. This is his name to you. Father, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. So that is a beautiful paragraph, but it's also a a serious warning, isn't it? That that our level of maturity, our like grasping and getting of the gospel and Christianity and what makes Christianity unique from every other way of approaching God in the world. What makes it unique is our understanding that God is a father and that we're sons and daughters. And if we don't get that, we don't get the big picture of who God is for us in Jesus. 
Like that's what's at stake here. If we don't get this, we don't have this thing. We don't get this thing that we're in the middle of. And, and when we talk about getting it and grasping it, we're not talking like just a mental awareness of the fact that God's a father and that we're sons and daughters. We're talking about feeling this thing deep down in our bones that God is a father to us. Now to that end, Galatians 4 is going to be a big help. Not just like mentally knowing this thing, but experientially knowing it. Like deep in your bones, the bottom places of your soul, knowing that God's a father to you. Galatians chapter 4. Now, we're going to focus on really four, four verses here. Four and five. We're going to talk about that for a second. And then six and seven are going to drive the morning for us. So we're going to start in verse four and five here. Now, I want you to kind of notice the parallels as we talk about these two sets of verses. Four and five, six and seven. So for, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I love verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 is packed with like hundreds of sermons, right? I mean, there's a lot of content right there in verse 4 and 5. But let me just kind of frame it like this. In verse 4 and 5, we are introduced to a really big reality in the universe. His name is God. Do you see it right there in the middle of this? But when the fullness of time had come, God. We are introduced to God in verse 4 and 5. And, and God is doing something in verse 4 and 5. You see it right there, the next word. God sent. In verse 4 and 5, God is sending. So God we have, and God, that God is doing something, he is sending. And he's sending a someone. And the someone is, is his son. So we have God, God is sending, and God is sending his son. And now the question is, why is he sending his son? What is the purpose of God sending his son? What, to what end is God after here? What is the result of God sending his son? And you see it in verse 5. Two huge biblical words. You, you see it in two words. Verse 5, to redeem, you see that? And then to adopt. For, for your redemption and for your, re and, and for your adoption. Okay, so, so when the Bible is talking about man and woman, about you and I, it paints the pictures in really dark colors about where we stand before God when we're born. Things like we are enslaved to sin, condemned in our sin, dead in our sin. It uses phrases like that to describe when we come out of the womb what our relationship to God is like. And when it uses this word redeemed, here's what it's saying. That God sent his son Jesus to be slaughtered on a cross to redeem you, to purchase you out of the slavery of your sin, to liberate you. And we used a courtroom word last, uh, last week called justification, another way to describe what God has done for us in Jesus. And in justification, it's the, it's the courtroom analogy for what God has done for us. That we are guilty rebels. We have fired the first shot at God. And God has tracked us down and caught us and drug us into the court of his law. And God the judge is presiding over the case. And we're, we're guilty. We've been caught red-handed. And when God slams down the gavel to give our verdict, rather than saying guilty, he looks at you and I and says, not guilty. Amen. He looks at us and says, you are pardoned. Your sin is gone. I mean, can you imagine that? And, and even better than that, it's not just that your sin has been wiped clean, it's he takes the perfect record of Jesus and credits that to our account. Justification is this courtroom word that says you're not just pardoned, you are perfected because of Jesus. 
And we talked about this last week. Here's the next big word. There's redemption and justification. But now we get this next beautiful word called adoption in verse 5. That, that God sent forth his son, Jesus, for our redemption and our adoption. See, adoption is even better than, than redemption and justification. Adoption is when God the judge, who has just pronounced us pardoned and perfected, takes off his judicial garb, he comes around the bench, and he looks at you and I right in the eyes and says, I am going to make you a son. You who, who fired the first shot, you who are red-handed, caught in your sin, rebels, I'm looking at you and I'm adopting you. I'm going to be a father for you. All of my wealth, all that I am, my strength, everything that I am is now leveraged on your behalf. That's adoption. The best news of the gospel, that the best blessing of the gospel that has been bestowed upon you is not the fact that you have been pardoned and perfected, as great as that is. It's that in light of God pardoning and perfecting you, he also has pronounced over you son and daughter. The richest blessing of the gospel. A guy named Brian Chapel. he's wrote several books. He's an author, seminary professor. He's, he's kind of all in that world of things. He tells this story in his hometown about these two boys that were playing on the sandbanks by the, the river that, that cut right through their town. And the sandbanks were, were definitely, they were the place that's probably like the most fun place to play in the city. You've got these huge mounds that, that kind of line the river. But at the same time, they were by far the most dangerous place for two little boys to, to play. And uh, he describes the danger like this, because commerce, the, the river was so central to the commerce of the city, they would uh, periodically dredge the river and dump all of that silt and sand on the sides, hence the, the sandbanks that they're playing on. And you can just kind of imagine what happens. So you've got all this wet sand that's dumped on the side of the river, and uh, the, the top layer of that sand is exposed to the sun, and immediately begins to dry and harden. So you've got this hard layer over the top. And over time, the sand underneath begins to dry, loses its moisture. It condenses and contracts, leaving these pits and holes right under that hard outer surface. You see the picture? So, so you've got these, these two brothers who have gone and they're playing in the most fun, but at the same time, the most dangerous place to play on these banks. And they hit the, the brittle top surface and land in one of these pits. And immediately the sand covers them. It's like a sinkhole. It's just sucking them down into this, this pit of sand coming around them. And they didn't, they didn't show up for dinner that night. So family and friends began this frantic search of these two brothers who are missing. And it's after dark now, so they finally found the, the, the younger brother, and all they can see sticking up out of this sandbank, like all they can see is his head and the top part of his shoulders. And, and they began this frantic kind of clearing out, uh, you know, the way the sand, and he's unconscious. About the time they get to his waist, he finally kind of comes back to, and, and they are desperately asking him, where is your older brother? Where is he? And, and that's when he looks back at him and says, I'm standing on his shoulders. I'm standing on his shoulders. Older brother sacrifices his life to save younger brother. Now the problem with that illustration is like as moving and as gripping as that moment of, of, of that sacrifice is, it's really not appropriate to apply it even to the gospel in the sense that we are not lovable younger brothers. 
We are rebels who have, who have fired the first shot, yet God sent forth his son and put him under us, allowed us to stand on his shoulders so that we could be saved, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be justified, so that you and I could be adopted and brought into the family. I, part of what Paul's trying to do in verse four and five is to remind us this morning of whose shoulders we're on. He's trying to remind you and me that those are unique shoulders. Those are the shoulders of Jesus that took all of your sin, that held all of God's wrath for you. Those are the shoulders that we're on this morning. Then you get to to six and seven. God sent forth his son. He's doing something. He's sending and he sent his son. Why? For our redemption, our justification, our adoption. And then look at verse six and seven and notice, notice the parallels here. And because you are sons, God, here we have it again. We've got God. We're introduced to this big reality of, of God again here. God and God's doing something has sent. So, so just like in verse Four and five, we've got God as the central character and God is doing something. He is sending. We see it twice there. But this time it's not going to be his son that he's sending. He's already sent Jesus to accomplish this thing. Now he's sending someone else. God has sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. To what end? To produce in our heart this cry of Abba, this, this look and feel of God as I am a son and daughter. You are a father to me to produce that in us so that you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see what's happening here? In verse 4 and 5, it's God sent his son to accomplish what? Our redemption and our adoption to accomplish that. But now in verse 6 and 7, it's entirely something different. God has sent his spirit to produce this cry in our heart of Abba Father. Now, now that cry that is meant to be produced by the spirit is a massively important thing. And I want to spend the rest of the morning kind of trying to unpack what is, is the Bible saying that the spirit is trying to accomplish in us, to, to do in us, when it says it's, it's producing in us this cry of Abba Father. So I've, I've got four questions to hopefully kind of untie this for us of what is the Spirit of God doing when it's saying that it's producing this Abba Father cry in, in us? Four questions. Here's the first one. What is promised? So when it's saying that this is what the Spirit of God's going to do, produce that, what is that? What is this Abba Father cry? What, what is that? Okay, look at verse 6 again. And because you are sons. Now, I love that verse because it's a statement of fact. It's saying that if you're in Christ, if there's been a moment where you put your faith in Jesus, if there's been that moment, this is what you are. You are a son or daughter of God. And if that is not you today, now I just want to take a brief moment to just plead with you. This could be your day for that. The great, wonderful news of the gospel is that this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, God would love to adopt you. God would love to bring you into his family right now, this moment, today. But, but God is saying here that this is what you are. You, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are positionally. A legal status has been changed. This is what you are positionally. A son or daughter of God. That is unalterable. That's unchangeable. You don't like work your way out of that at some point. This is what you are and will be for the rest of eternity. Positionally, you are sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. 
So this is what you are positionally, son, and what the Spirit's role is in our life. God sends the Spirit to take up residence within us, to to make a home within us, and the Spirit's job is to apply what Jesus has accomplished. This is what you are positionally because of Jesus, and now the Spirit's job is to come into your heart and let you feel practically what you are positionally. Are we seeing that? That's a big deal right there. I mean, maybe you can think of it this way. As wonderful as the fact that God has redeemed, uh, you know, redeemed us and justified us, pardoned and perfected us, wouldn't we all say that adoption is better? Because adoption brings us into the family of God. Now we're not relating to a judge, we're relating to a father. But now I want you to, to see the next step that the Bible is showing us in God's mercy and grace toward us. God doesn't just look at us and say, okay, you're adopted, you're in. You're a son, you're mine. It's, it's been accomplished. I've done everything, I, everything needed to be done. I've moved heaven and hell to adopt you. You are mine. He doesn't just say that. He says, I've done that. I've moved heaven and hell to adopt you, to, make, to be a father to you. I, I've, I've done everything needed to accomplish that. And now, do you know what I'm going to do out of an act of grace to you? I'm going to send my spirit into your hearts so that you will practically, on a daily basis, feel what it is that I have done. So this is the work of the Spirit of God in our life. To, for us to experientially feel the fatherhood of God. That's what it's saying here. That's what's promised here. Maybe I could uh, illustrate it with this. Now, I don't know if you've ever been <coughs> introduced to nothing but cakes. Nothing but cakes. Because I'm telling you, right here is John 10, 10 in a box. This is... This, I, I, I'll tell you this, I'm going to be, I, I will likely be a little bit disappointed if these things don't show up in heaven. I'm just being honest. <laughs> that these things are that good. Now they've got all sorts of different flavors. I wish you could probably see that a little bit better. But you see all of, all of those guys right there? I mean, that, that's, that is, that's good stuff right there. I'll tell you what that is. So uh, now my favorite, I mean, they've got, I think there's four different flavors in here. Now my favorite flavor though, I mean, if you want to know like where the best of the best is, the fa- my favorite flavor is that guy right there. Can you see that red? That's red velvet bunt cake right there. That right there is good. Now, okay, if I could kind of describe that red velvet uh, bunt cake, that, it, it's like got this weird mixture of like, it's really like condensed and thick in there, but at the same time, really moist and kind of mixed into that red velvet is chocolate chips. See, it just got better right there, didn't it? <laughs> I'm telling you, this, this right here, thanks to Sarah Falco, this right here has been introduced into my life, and I'm so appreciative of that. Now, to, to, to top all of that off, do you see what's on top of that guy, that guy right there? That is some sort of cream cheese deliciousness icing. You, you do the mixture of red velvet bunt cake with that cream cheese icing, and I'm telling you, something happens that's dangerous. Something, something good happens. Let me just stop right here. If, if you were to leave today, if you were to leave and somebody were to ask you, hey, do you know about red velvet bunt cakes? You would say what? Yes, I know about red velvet. I, I just had it explained to me. There's chocolate chips mixed in that. It's moist on one hand and thick and condensed on the other. It's got this, this some sort of cream cheese icing on top. It's like a little bit of heaven. You, you would say, yes, I know about, about red velvet bunt cakes. But you don't know it like that. (laughs) 
You don't know it like that. I'm telling you. But you need to know it like that. Knowing number one, mental assent. That is what Jesus has done for you. He has accomplished that. To where you, if, you're, if you put your faith in Jesus, you can look at God and say, I know you are a father to me. I know that. I know that I'm a son. That, that, that's what Jesus has done. Whether you feel like it or not, Jesus has made you that. That doesn't change. Knowing number two, experiential, taking a bite out of the bunt cake. That's what the Spirit of God has done for you. Jesus has given you this sort of a knowing. Now the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life so that you can take a big bite out of what Jesus has done for you and now you know it in a whole different way. That's what the Spirit of God is promising here. That when it says that I'm going to come up and take residence and produce this sort of Abba Father cry, that's what it's saying, that you will experientially know it. Like taking a bite out of it and tasting it where it just explodes with life on your tongue and in your heart. This, this is what he's saying. This is what's promised. Question number two, why do we need it? Why do we need it? Now, I asked you um, last week to imagine this scenario of a, uh, of a boy somewhere overseas that was born and dropped off at an orphanage a second after he was born. He's grown up in the orphanage. He, all he's ever known is life in an orphanage. He's never had a mom and a dad. He's always had to fend for himself and fight for himself. Imagine that scenario. Now imagine that, that you're the family, that you go overseas, you find this boy in this orphanage, and you look at him and say, I am going to be a daddy to you. I'm gonna, we're going to be a mama and a daddy. We're going to be your parents. And we're going to love you as a son. You're, you're a part of our family now. And imagine that moment where you take him out of the orphanage. And, and we talked about this last week, that it's one thing to take a baby out of the orphanage, a three-year-old out of the orphanage. And it's a whole other thing to take that orphanage, that, that orphan feeling out of the three-year-old. And, and I, I talked about this last week, Russell Moore, he adopted two boys from a, um, uh, an orphanage over in, uh, in Russia. And he describes this, this thing of watching like this process play out. They went and adopted this, their two sons. They brought them back home. And then he noticed that, that at the table, they would start hiding scraps in their high chair. High chair. They, they would start grabbing food and stuffing it in their pockets. And he said that it was a wonder just kind of watching this thing play out. Like we knew that they were starting to feel like sons when they stopped hiding their food. When they, stopped doing, when they would actually depend on us to provide another meal for them. Okay, now take that imagery and let's apply it to our life. This is why it is that we need the Spirit of God to do its work in us. Because that imagery right there that we, we just saw, like hiding scraps, like doing that whole thing, that is us, isn't it? Amen. See, positionally, we have been changed if you're in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus and you're a part of the family, your legal status has forever been different. Like you have been taken out of the orphanage. But it's a whole other thing to have that orphan nature, that orphan feeling taken out of us. And what the Spirit of God has come to do is to do that. To help take that orphan feeling out of us. To help, help us actually feel like sons and daughters of God. So I want to give you a place to see this. on the, the, Answering the question, why do we need this? I want, to, I want to show you one place in the Bible that I think just shows this in vivid colors about this orphan nature existing in all of us. 
And it's Luke 15. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there if you want. If not, I think it'll be on the screen for you. So either way you want to go. So a couple of years ago, we spent some time in Luke 15, and we learned that that more than it's the story of the prodigal son, it's really a story about two sons, an elder brother and a younger brother. And really, even more than it being a story about two sons, it's a story about God and his relationship to his sons and daughters. So so it's really about a God of reckless grace that is willing to, to dispense his grace freely to people. That's what it's really about. So as the story goes, the younger son comes to his father and demands his share of the inheritance. It it would be just an unbelievably rude and disrespectful thing to do. It would almost be saying like, dad, you are dead to me. And the dad looks at his son in what must have been a heartbreaking moment and said, here is what is yours, you can have it. And he watched his rebellious young son um, take that inheritance and, and run to the far country. And it wasn't long before he squandered all of his inheritance and he finds himself, wakes up and finds himself in a pigsty competing for their food. And the Bible says in the middle of that, he came to his senses and, and, and he's ready to repent. He sees where he has gone wrong. He is ready to repent and return home to the Father. And I, wanna, I want you to hear this repentant speech that he is running around in his head. Here, here's how the repentant speech goes. Luke 15 verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, there is a part of what he is saying is true. He is not worthy to be called a son of his father any longer. But there is a part of what he is saying that is dreadfully false. He is way underestimating the lavish grace of his father, isn't he? Here's how Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his book, Children of the Living God. And listen to these words. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, Although the story is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables— The lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn on us. Let's take a second to hear that. what, What this parable is teaching us is that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves and our past failures and our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. Listen, listen to this next phrase. Many Christians, and I would say almost every Christian deep down in their soul, Many Christians, if not every Christian, goes through uh, much of their lives with a prodigal suspicion. You hearing that? A pr- the prodigal suspicion. Their concentration is upon their sin and failure. All of their thoughts are introspective. He goes on to say this. Like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We're slow to realize the implications of this. We have this, listen to this phrase. We have the status as sons, but we have the mindset of a hired servant or an orphan. 
Now, this is where almost all of us live. And, and, and I think I could just say the word all of us in certain days and in certain ways. All of us live like this. We've got the status, but we're not living in the status. We're living well below our privileges, the Puritans used to say. This is all of our problems, is that we are sons, but we don't want to be treated like sons from God. So we look at God just like the prodigal and say, no, no, God, we're not in for the father-son relationship. Why don't you just, why don't you just arrange a, a kind of the, the boss-employee relationship? Why don't you just do the master-slave relationship here? See, like the prodigal, we all had the suspicion of the, that there's just no way that God could really relate to us over grace. There is no way that God could do that. See, this is what it's teaching us here, is that suspicion is deeply embedded into your heart and mine. And so that when we come to Jesus, there is a sense in which we could say, we are believing that God is adopting us because of Jesus. But there is another sense in which we would all have to say, we don't really believe that. That in one sense, we would say, we believe that we are adopted sons of God. But in another sense, we would all have to say, no, I, I don't, not this day, I don't believe that. Not right now, I don't believe that. This is all of us. This is how all of us operate. That prodigal suspicion is deeply embedded into every human heart. Okay, now I want to just give you some evidences of this. I'm going to put some characteristics of, of orphans and sons up on the screen for you to think about. I'm actually, go, you don't have to take notes on this. I'm going to post this to the city and I'm going to send an attachment that has all of this stuff in it today. And so don't worry about taking any notes. Just sit and think and, and, and allow the Spirit of God to kind of work in this moment for you. Here are characteristics of what it looks like in life to feel like an orphan and on the other side to feel like a son. Okay, so, so let's play these out. An orphan feels alone, lacks vital daily intimacy with God, while a child of God, like that's actually feeling. We're not talking about status. We're talking about a daily level. You wake up on Monday, how do you feel? While a child of God has a growing assurance that God is really, like really, really, really my loving father. An orphan is anxious over felt needs. So how is that relationship going to play out? What about money? Oh my gosh, what if I gave that? What would that do? It's fearful. Um, what about our health? That, that's anxiety that, that would describe an orphan nature in us. This feeling that, that I'm all alone and nobody else cares. Here's what a child feels like. A child trusts the father and has a growing confidence in his loving care. That's what it feels like to be a child is being freed up from worry. Here's what an orphan feels like. They feel condemned and guilty and unworthy before God and others, while a child feels loved and forgiven and totally accepted because of Christ's merit really clothing him. An orphan feels defensive, can't listen well, can only handle praise, while a child of God, like that actually feels it, is open to criticism since he or she consciously stands in Christ's perfection and not their own. An orphan needs to be right, needs to be safe, needs to be secure, while a child of God is able to take risk and even fail. That, that orphan nature in us tends to be ungrateful and complaining and bitter and gossipy, while that, that feeling like, like we're children, actually, actually feeling like it produces this thankfulness to God and we're encouraging toward others. 
That orphan nature in us tends to compare himself or herself with others, leading to pride when we're doing well and depression when we're not. While when we actually feel like children of God, we stand confidently in Christ. His self-worth or her self-worth, the child, comes from Jesus's righteousness, not their own. An orphan boasts about strengths and accomplishments in fear that others will overlook them. So if I don't make it known, I mean, what's going to happen? They're not going to notice how good I am. While a child boasts, but not in their strengths, but in their weaknesses, they find that more and more of their conversation, the subject of them, is about Jesus and not their strengths. An orphan is relatively prayerless. Prayer is always kind of a last resort, a last-ditch effort. Where for a child, prayer is a vital part of the day. They actually love to talk to their father. See, in all of us, this is why we need verse 6, Galatians 4, 6, so badly. Because deep in our heart, we all have that orphan nature that loves to hide crumbs just in case God doesn't come through for us. So what does it feel like to get it? So, So when the Spirit of God produces this Abba Father moment in us, what does that feel like deep in our soul? Let's go back to Luke 15. I'm going to read this this response to you to be on the screen as well. Remember the prodigal comes home. He's got his repentance repentance speech that is part true but part false. And and the big thing he has wrong is just how gracious his father is toward him. So he's making his way home and the father is looking out for him. And this is how it goes in Luke 15, starting in verse 20. And the father arose, or the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring, the, uh, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. That is grace, isn't it? That is grace. The father is looking at the son from a long way off and he sees him. He makes him out in the distance and he runs toward him. He scoops him up in his arms and kisses him. Now, if you want a metaphor for what the spirit of God is doing in Galatians 4, 6, that's it. The father is kissing his son, embracing his son, and that's the spirit's job. That's the metaphor for what it feels like when the Spirit of God is doing its work in us, making us feel like sons. I love how the Puritans used to describe like the experience of adoption. They they used the the imagery of imagine a a father and son walking along the road. And the the son knows that this is his father and the father knows that this is his son. The status is, is there. The, the, the sonship has been established. But, but they're walking down this road and all of a sudden, the father bends down, scoops up his three-year-old boy, throws him up in the air, embraces him and kisses him. That's the picture of what the Spirit of God does in us in Galatians 4, 6. Now, now think about this. In no way, shape or form is the status different. He's not more of a son because he's up in his father's arms. He's not more of a son because the father is embracing him and kissing him. He's not more of a son in in that moment. But he sure feels more like a son, doesn't he? 
See, th- this, is, this is what it feels like when the Spirit of God is doing its work. It's almost as if God scoops us up in his arm, throws his arms around us, and gives us a kiss on the forehead. That, that is the Spirit of God helping us feel like sons. Maybe you could say it this way. What, what does it feel like for the Spirit of God to do this? It feels like a deep assurance of God's love for us. That's what it feels like. A deep in our bones assurance. About a year ago, I was preaching for a friend of mine down in Houston. And I just come off of a week of a lot of just, just really tough counseling sort of scenarios. And uh, one particular, uh, you know, scenario, I was just trying to encourage a man that I love dearly. Who, uh, he, he made this comment just in the midst of that conversation that I kind of feel like I might be getting Alzheimer's. And, uh, and I'm just trying to gently encourage in that and, and just trying to push toward, man, God is good for you. In this moment, even when you feel like that, he's good for you. So now fast forward, it's a few days later and I am about to preach. I'm literally like, it's, it's in the middle of the worship set right before it's in the last song. So I'm like just minutes away from, from uh, sending up and preaching to this group of people down in Houston. And all of a sudden I start thinking, well, what if I get Alzheimer's? Man, I, I, don't really, I don't really know how that would work in preaching. I mean, like three illustrations in the same sermon, all the same. That probably doesn't go real well. Um, I, I don't really think pastoring kind of works if, if, I, you know, if, I've, if I've got that. I'd probably have to find something different. I don't know if I could find a job if I've got that. And, and then, I mean, like I'm starting to circle around the toilet bowl here, right? And so, I mean, it goes from that to, man, it, I, I'm going to not have a job. And what's going to happen to my kids? They're probably going to starve to death. And what's going to happen to Laura? She's going to have, like, for the rest of her life, she's going to be fending for herself. And, like, literally, this is all, like, three minutes before I'm about to go preach. And uh, it was so interesting. And when I kind of came to in the midst of that, I mean, I just, like, was down, like, right, like, somebody just reached me and grabbed me out of the toilet bowl, right? I mean, just right, I kind of came to, about to go preach, and I noticed that we are in the middle of David Crowder's song, Oh, How He Loves Us. And when I came to, it was in the middle of the chorus where it almost feels like an entire church is just screaming at the top of their lungs, he loves us, oh how he loves us. And can I just say what that moment was for me? This. In one moment, I did not feel anything like a son. And in the middle of just... I mean, circling the toilet bowl, about to be sucked in. It is like the Spirit of God came in that moment and produced in me the cry, Abba, Father. Produced in me this deep assurance of, you know what? If you're not going to be able to be a father to your kids, God's God's plenty capable of being a good father to them. And, And if you can't be a good husband to Laura, Jesus is plenty capable of being a good husband to her. My status had not changed any. I was a son in the middle of the toilet bowl experience and after. But can I just tell you this? The feeling of it sure did. And can, man, here's the thing. We all need these moments for God to do that to us. For God to scoop us up in the middle of circling the toilet bowl and just to remind us this is what you are and to help us feel deep in our bones that this is what you are. Let me end with this. We'll be done. How do we get it? So if this is what the Spirit of God is promising us to produce in us this cry, Abba, Father, how do we go about getting that? Well, let, let me first say in answering that question that it is the Spirit's job, not yours. 
So there's a real sense in which you can't go get that. That it requires the Spirit of God doing something for you. So now in light of that, let me phrase it this way. There are things you can do to get in the way of what the Spirit normally does. So I just want to give you two things that will help you get in the way of what the Spirit, how the Spirit normally does this whole thing right here. So just two quick ways of getting in the way of this. Number one is to pray for it. To actually pray for it. To actually pray that there would be more moments in your life where God is scooping you up in his arms and helping you feel his fatherhood. I love what um, Jack Miller said. He, he put it this way. The biggest glory of the Christian life is the, fact that, is the fact that the Father sees us as his sons and daughters. That God, our Father, sees us like that. That's the biggest glory. But he contrasts that with this. The biggest risk to the Christian life is that we veer away to act like orphans, not sons and daughters. Here's the biggest glory. Here is the biggest risk that you and I have. That we will not feel like sons and daughters, but we will practically live like orphans. And so I, mean, I just want to invite you to actually start praying that God would not allow you to live like an orphan. That God would give you eyes to see where you're living like an orphan. And that God would help produce in you that cry of Abba Father. So, so one, I just want to encourage you to pray for it. And secondly, I want you to think about it, to think on it, to pray for it and to think on it. And I want to go back to uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It'll be on the screen for you. This is a verse that I, I, I doubt there will be a sermon in this set of sermons that we will not at some point mention 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It goes like this. See, like look or behold, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. See it. It's saying that, that, remember the prodigal suspicion? You're not just going to recognize it. That you have to like fix your gaze on it. That you have to get your eyesight up from you and your stuff up to God and his grace. That you have to look and behold. You have to get your eyes, you know, fixed on it. You have to get your mind thinking upon this thing. It's telling us to look, to think about it, to behold it. Behold, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And what does it tell us to look to? that we should be called children of God. It's so us to think about that, to consider that, to roll that around in our brain, to marinate our brain with the fact that God looks at us and calls us sons and daughters. To think about that, to, to soak our soul in that reality, the best news that has ever been said about you, God looking at you saying, you're mine and you're my children. And the truth is, we can't think about being a child of God without thinking about the cross, right? You can't do that. Because it's on the cross that, that everything needed to make us children of God was accomplished for us. That we have an elder brother, his name is Jesus, that we are standing on his shoulders. That's the only reason we could ever be adopted, we could ever be redeemed, we could ever be justified in God's sight. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, there's only one place that Jesus refers to God as anything other than Father. When he's talking to his Father, there's only one place where he doesn't use the word Father to describe the interaction going on there. And do you remember where that is? On the cross, right before Jesus dies, where he screams at the top of his lungs, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what that's showing us in that moment? 
it's showing us just how particular and passionate and personal God's love is for you and for me. That in a very real sense, in that moment where the entire weight of our sin and God's wrath for it is being stacked onto the shoulders of Jesus, in a very real sense, in that moment, God the Father lost his son. No longer had a son in that moment. And he did all that to make you one. To make me one. That's what sort of love the Father has lavished upon us. Let me close with this. Really the question is, is not do you like know that up here, but are you, experiential, are you experientially feeling this? Do you, do you know this deep in your bones? And listen to Packer one more time as he's closing his chapter. Chapter 19, Knowing God. He says this. Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I really know my own identity, my own real destiny? Do I really know that? And then, then he goes on to describe it. Here's what our identity is. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother. That's who we are. This is the reality of who we are positionally before God. And then he gives us this encouragement. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime when your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life, Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. And this is my prayer for you. May this become fully yours and mine. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.